Well, again, good morning, and I'm thankful that you all are here this morning, and we've sung God's praises, and uh, hopefully your hearts are prepared to hear from His Word, but we turn our attention there now. So if you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, for those of you who uh, are with us on a regular basis, you know that uh, we've been walking through the book of Acts with Pastor Richard uh, for the last year or so, um, really last couple of years, uh, and we're coming up on the end of our journey of the book of Acts, uh, and so the last two times that I've had the opportunity to preach to you, we've looked at uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, now, the Gospel of Luke uh, is really the first volume uh, in the Luke-Acts installment in the New Testament. Um, Luke, who was an associate of Paul, uh, wrote the book of Acts, uh, and uh, really from Christ's ascension uh, until the death of Paul, uh, you have the book of Acts, well, the book of Luke covers from Christ's birth into his death and resurrection. And so this is kind of volume one of the series that we've been looking at for the past several years. Another interesting thing uh, that kind of ties this in with our study in the book of Acts, uh, if you pay close attention to pronouns in the Bible, which I hope that you do as you're reading the Bible and as you're studying, uh, every word is important. And uh, particularly the pronouns uh, are important. And if you've been paying attention to kind of these travel logs that the last several weeks Pastor Richard has been preaching through, and he'll read these travel logs uh, of different places on these missionary journeys that Paul and his uh, partners in ministry uh, traveled from this place to this place and from this place to this place. Early on in the book of Luke, uh, the pronouns were he and they. So talking of the Apostle Paul and his associates, uh, he went from this place to this place, and they traveled from here to there by means of this. And But the last couple of weeks, it's really interesting because that pronoun has changed. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. And it's because it's changed from he and they to we. We traveled from here to there. We went from this place into this place. We encouraged Paul to stay here. It's because Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the writer of Acts, uh, at that point in Paul's ministry, had joined together with him. So uh, Luke was a close associate of Paul. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at that first volume this morning, beginning in verse 9. So hopefully if you are there at this point, uh, I would like to invite you one more time uh, to stand with us. Uh, we are a church who believes that the Bible is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So I would invite you to stand as I read it for us this morning. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you one more time asking your Spirit's help 
as we study your word. I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are in a very significant portion of a time period of church history, uh, whether you realize it or not. Uh, October 31st is a very special day in the history of the Protestant church. Um, We celebrate it most often as Halloween, uh, but as most of you know, uh, in church history, October 31st is also known as Reformation Day, Protestant Reformation Day. On October 31st in the year 1517, almost 500 years ago now, a man by the name Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk and a professor of the Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, famously nailed his his 95 thesis to the door of the castle in Wittenberg. And those 95 theses or those 95 arguments that Luther was making, he was challenging the idea of the day that justification before God could be bought and sold by buying and selling indulgences from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm going to be using this term justification a whole lot in this sermon. And so I want to take just a brief second to tell you what that is, because if you don't know what justification is, then the rest of the sermon may not make a whole lot of sense. So this idea of justification is, has to do with our standing before God. The person who has justified what Jesus is talking about when he said this man went down to his home justified means that in the eyes of God, this man was declared righteous. So the question in Luther's day was, where can I find salvation? How do I gain uh, justification before God? How can I get in right standing before the Lord and be declared righteous before the Lord? That was that was the question. The popular teaching in the Roman Catholic Church was that you could buy and sell you and your family members in and out of purgatory uh, by giving money to the church and by buying and selling these indulgences. Well, Martin Luther uh, did not think that that was correct. Through his study of the New Testament, particularly the books of Galatians and Romans by the Apostle Paul, Luther began to understand that our justification before God did not come through any external work of devotion or act of piety within the church. That our justification, rather, comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those were three of the five solas, or the the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. By faith alone, uh, through grace alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. That's how we gain justification before the Lord. We are sitting here this morning with the opportunity to understand rightfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, the biblical gospel, in no small part due to Luther's work and those who followed after him. We believe that salvation can only be found by grace alone. We understand that salvation, that justification, is an undeserved gift that comes from God. We don't do anything to deserve this gift. We actually deserve the opposite. Through faith alone. It's not on the basis of any good work that you and I could ever do. We cannot gain and earn our salvation by any external act of piety or devotion. And it can be found in Christ alone. Because the Scripture is very clear. 
that there is no other name in heaven and under the earth by which men may be saved. You remember back a few weeks ago when we looked at the parable right before this, the parable of the persistent widow and the wicked judge. You will remember that the context here that these parables fall into, uh, the Pharisees have just asked Jesus this question, when is the kingdom of God going to come? When is the kingdom of God going to be here? And we talked about this eschatological discourse, is what the scholars call it, this, this talk of Jesus answering these questions from the Pharisees of when the kingdom of God was going to come. And he told the Pharisees, if you remember, that the kingdom of God is right in front of their faces because the king was right in front of their faces. Jesus is saying, I am the king, and therefore the kingdom that you are searching for is right here in your midst. It's right here. But then in the very next breath, he turns to his disciples and he says, now there is going to come a time in which you long to see the king but I will no longer be here with you physically. And it's in that time when I am no longer with you physically and you long and you desire to see the king that you must persevere in your faith to the end. And that's where he tells this parable that we looked at last time of the persistent widow and the unjust judge where we learned that prayer is one of the means by which we persevere in our faith under trial and difficulty. That, that prayer is not just us making requests to God, but prayer actually does a work in our own heart and in our own faith that helps us. And in prayer, we talked about that, that saying that prayer changes things. And we said, yes, prayer certainly changes things, but it starts by changing you first, right? That prayer changes you, and it, it's a means by which God pushes you along in your faith. Well, now the question with this next parable, right on the hills of that parable where Jesus teaches us about prayer, we look at a different kind of prayer. We look at a different kind of prayer. And, and the question that is being answered here uh, in this prayer is not where is the kingdom and not, uh, not where can I find the kingdom, but the question that's being answered by this parable and by the prayers found in this parable is who is part of the kingdom of God? So where is the kingdom? We looked at that last time. This week is, who is a part of this kingdom? And that's where Jesus teaches us this morning uh, from this parable. So, as we look at the text this morning, we'll see this, this question very plainly answered. How can I be a part of the kingdom of God? In particular, we will see that the person who is brought into the kingdom of God is not the self-righteous, prideful person with a superiority complex. That's not the character of a person who's in the kingdom. Instead, as Jesus says in this passage, it is the humble person who acknowledges their sin before God and pleads for his mercy. So that brings us to our first point. If you're taking notes this morning, our first point in the text is that we need a righteousness that can only come from God. We need righteousness that can only come from God. Now, in our previous parable, we saw that Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples. But now, Jesus has turned his attention from his disciples, and he's now speaking to this unidentified group of people. We don't know their names. We don't know their status. We don't know who they are. But all we know is one aspect of their character. Okay? Luke tells us two things about them there in verse 9. If you look down in verse 9, he gives us two things about uh, the hearers of this parable. He says, first off, 
They were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. They believed that their righteousness, that their right standing before the Lord, came from somewhere within themselves. That's the first thing they thought. And the second thing they thought, based off of the first, was that they looked at other people and they treated them with contempt. So they were self-righteous and they treated others with contempt. Okay? The story in this parable is very, very simple. There are two main characters. There's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. Some of your translations, if you're using the King James translation, it may not say tax collector, it may say publican. Uh, it's the same position. Uh, tax collector, publican, it's the same, uh, describes the same position. Now, I was told by someone in the first service uh, to remind you guys in the second service that publican and republican aren't necessarily the same thing. So, you, you were thinking the same thing, weren't you? That's exactly right. Yeah, publican and republican aren't necessarily the same thing. So, take that for what it's worth. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so, let's look at the Pharisee first. Let's look at this Pharisee first. Now, we as New Testament Christians are very often tempted to look down on the Pharisees. If I say the word Pharisee, what usually pops in your brain is not necessarily an outstanding citizen. Uh, our understanding of this group of men in the New Testament has been shaped by several of the stories in the Gospel where the Pharisees are challenging Jesus' teaching uh, or where the Pharisees are uh, calling into question uh, the, the authority of Jesus, perhaps even plotting to kill Him, which they certainly did. Uh, our thoughts are formed by the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, who made his life before conversion when he was Saul uh, as a Pharisee to hunt down Christians, to drag them out, to throw them in prison, and even to put them to death. Our, our thoughts about the Pharisees are shaped and formed by those stories. Uh, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I think that that is, that is uh, you know a proper understanding, for the most part, of what this group of men did in the first century. Now, <clears throat> we even use Pharisee as a derogatory term. It's kind of like a Christian cuss word, right? Where we want to we wanna talk down about somebody, and we'll even toss it out there as a derogatory term. Well, that person is such a Pharisee, meaning that they're a hypocrite, uh, that, that they're no good. But what I hope that we see here is that our understanding of this group of men uh, as the Pharisees and the understanding of the Pharisees, of the people to whom Jesus is talking to in this parable when he's telling this story, and even more broadly, most people in the New Testament era were two completely and totally different perceptions. We see the Pharisees as the bad guys. Well, in Jesus' day, most of the people saw them as the exact opposite. Is the exact opposite. And I want to talk about why that is a little bit. Okay? So Pharisees in that day, uh, <clears throat> Josephus, who is a first century uh, Roman Jewish scholar, described the Pharisees in this way. They were a class of Jews who considered themselves to be the godliest of the nation and the most rigorous followers of the law of God. Okay? So they considered themselves to be godly and rigorous followers of the law of God. The Pharisees had a great reputation in Israel and would have been a, a, represent, a representation of everything that was good and right about the culture in that day. Okay? We have a hard time seeing that, but, but 
you see, I think the key is where often the Pharisees have a bad rap in our mind and in our eyes, the key is, <clears throat> is that Pharisees were just trying to do their best to be faithfully obedient to the law of God. That's all they were trying to do. They were trying to be faithfully obedient to the law of God. Now, we praise that kind of behavior today. We all know people who, are, who try their hardest to be obedient to the laws of God, to walk in righteousness. But here's where the problem came in. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, many of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, and the Pharisees certainly that is praying this prayer, the issue with them is not that they were faithful to the law of God. The issue with them was not that they were not people who had a great reputation. They weren't, it wasn't that they were mean people or anything like that. The issue was that they were trusting in the wrong thing for their salvation. Their, their hope was misplaced. They were just trying to be faithfully obedient to the law of God. But they thought that their righteousness was based upon their obedience to the law. Look at what the Bible says, or look at what the Pharisee says, uh, rather, in verses 11 and 12. Look at his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, if you actually look at the content of this man's prayer, you would say, praise the Lord, <laughs> right? He, he's thankful to God. He's praying to God, the Father, which is exactly what Jesus taught us to do, our Father who is in heaven. So he's praying to the right person. Right? And, and, and look at the markers of his life. He's not an adulterer. Right? He's faithful to his wife. Uh, he, he's not a swindler. He's not a crook. He's not a thief. He's not unjust. He's an honest person who makes an honest living. He is in direct contrast to, and we'll see this in just a little bit, he is in direct contrast to everything that that tax collector represented. And from an outward standpoint, if you just looked at this man's life, you would see that it is full of virtue, full of godly virtue and very, very little vice. But the problem is, is that his hope was misplaced. You see, he looked at these external acts of devotion to God. He looked at the works of his own hands and the efforts that he brought to the table, and he said, Lord, I thank you that I. See, the, pro the problem is there is that pronoun. Again, the pronouns are important, right? Look down and just count really quickly how many times he says the word I. It's five times. Five times in two little verses. He says, I thank you that I am not this way. That I am not this way. That I am not this way. That I do this. That I do this. And that I am not like him. That's, that's the Pharisee's prayer. You can see where his trust is, right? His trust is in himself. Because that's exactly what he prays. He prays, I, I, I. But there's more than that. <clears throat> there's more than the fact that this man had this external uh, reputation, these external acts of righteousness. It's, it goes further than that. Not only was this, was this Pharisee a, a man of upstanding citizenship, but he was a man that went above and beyond the law of God. 
he didn't just get by with mediocre obedience to God's law. He went way above and beyond everything that he was supposed to do. He says, I fast twice a week. Twice a week. And he says, I give tithes of everything that I have. Okay, if you look in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, verses 29 through 30, there you find one of many places in which the Old Testament law is given and God gives his people instruction as to how they should afflict themselves with fasting. Okay? <clears throat> so, God gives these instructions in Leviticus 16. They're to afflict themselves with fasting. Guess how often? One time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is what Leviticus says. He says, in It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger or the sojourner among you. For on this day shall atonement be made to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sins. One day a year on the day of atonement, uh, the Jewish people were instructed by God to afflict themselves with fasting. He fasts twice a week. Way above and beyond anything that God had ever called them or instructed them to do. Right? Not once a year, but twice a week. He also tithed everything that he had. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 through 23, teaches us the tithing laws of Israel, of Old Testament Israel. And they were required to give a tithe of the first fruits of the yield of their crop. First fruits of the yield that came from their fields. Now, it's not clear in this text here, uh, really to me, if the Pharisee is saying, you know, uh, that, that he gives of all of the first fruits uh, the way he's supposed to. But many commentators, and, and it's interesting here that his prayer is not, I give of all of the first fruits of, my, uh, of the yield of my crop. But the Pharisee says, I tithe everything that I own. I tithe. Right, so he gives way above and beyond what the law of God required him to give. Before we go off thinking that this Pharisee is just some goody-two-shoes, we would do well to remember that he is just trying to be faithful to God. That's all he's trying to do. He's trying to be faithful to the law of God. And I sincerely believe that this Pharisee's prayer is a genuine prayer. I think that he's praying it from a genuine heart where he wants to obey the law of God. But there is not one person in this room who does not at least wish to strive to be so faithful to the law of God. Obedience to God's law is a great thing, isn't it? And every single one of us wants to be obedient to God's law. If this Pharisee were a member of our church today, we would probably make him a Sunday school teacher, a deacon. We would probably make him a choir member. We may even appoint him as a pastor of our church. Right? <clears throat> he would be a man of upstanding citizenship, which all of us would love and adore and seek to strive to follow his example of faith. That's the type of person that these original hearers of this, of this passage would hear when Jesus is telling this parable. Not the dirty, rotten Pharisees that we think of when, they pop in, when we talk about them and pop in our mind. Okay? But what does Jesus say about this Pharisee? And I hope that you see, I hope I've set this up to you to where when you hear Jesus' words at the end of this parable, they come like a left hook just to, to smack us in the jaw 
and to surprise us completely out of the blind because that's exactly the response that Jesus' hearers would have had in his day. Look at what Jesus says about this Pharisee. Is it him that walks away righteous in the eyes of God? Is it him that walks away justified in the eyes of God? No. With all of his works of righteousness, with all of his external deeds of piety and, and devotion, he does not stand in righteousness before a holy God. And that ought to be surprising to us. It should be surprising to us. But surprising is surprising to people in Jesus' day. The problem is not that the Pharisee was obedient to the law of God. The problem was not that the Pharisee's life was filled with virtue instead of vice. The problem is, is that those external acts of devotion, those external works of piety and, and religious faithfulness to the Lord do absolutely nothing to gain us righteousness in the sight of God. It is not the Pharisee that walks down from the Temple Mount back to his home justified. It's not that. His trust was misplaced. He was trying to earn his own righteousness before God. But listen to what Isaiah says about our works of righteousness and what they amount to. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We all have become like the one who is unclean. We all, or in all of our righteous deeds, are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Basically, the Old Testament says that if you took all of your good works, everything that you have ever done that would earn you righteousness, that you would think would earn you righteousness before God, and you stacked all of those things up, you know what they would amount to? Those dirty old shop rags that you use when you work on your tractor. That's what they amount to. No value whatsoever. You throw them off in the corner of your garage and just hope they don't spontaneously combust, right? Hope they don't catch fire. That's what your works of righteousness amounts to in the eyes of God. In terms of our works of righteousness, they amount to nothing before the Lord. Our righteousness must come from somewhere else other than ourselves. It must be given to us or imputed to us by the mercy of God. And that's what brings us to point two. Point two in your notes. God is interested in our hearts, not our external devotion. The Lord is interested in your heart not your external devotion. We're introduced to a totally different type of character next, right? The tax collector, or the publican. Not the Republican, but the publican. This tax collector would be the exact opposite of the Pharisee in every single possible way imaginable. Okay? If the Pharisee is the outstanding citizen that everyone respects and adores, the tax collector is the exact opposite. Right? And, and Jesus goes to the extreme in these verses, in this parable, to bring out the differences, not just in their character, but also in their actions and in their, in their devotional lives. You couldn't have two more different types of prayer. Right? The Pharisee is mentioned in this uh, passage as he goes into the presence of the Lord. He walks up the Temple Mount. He goes and he stands in the presence of the Lord he lifts his eyes towards the heaven. He has his arms outstretched. 
and he pleads to God, he cries out to God, looking to the heavens, standing in the presence of the Lord with his arms outstretched. That was a common posture of prayer in their day. You know, today when we pray, often we think of kneeling and bowing our heads and closing our eyes. But that's, that's not what they did in Jesus' day. They would go to the temple and they would stand and they would look to the heaven, eyes open with arms outstretched in the air. That's, that's the posture of prayer that this Pharisee has. Look at the posture of prayer of the tax collector. He, he won't even lift his eyes from the ground. He, he knows he is unworthy and he will not lift his eyes to the heavens. Whereas the Pharisee was standing in the presence of God, the tax collector is standing far off. He won't even come into the room. He, he, doesn't, he knows he doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of God, so he stands far off. There is not one ounce of self-righteousness in this tax collector. He knows he's guilty. He understands his guilt. Right? He, he doesn't compare himself to other people like the Pharisee did. The Pharisee in his prayer looks over to the tax collector standing far off in the other room and he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man right there. And the tax collector just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's his entire prayer. The Pharisee's prayer takes up two verses. I thank you that I'm not doing this and I don't do this and I do that and I do that. And the tax collector's prayer is one short sentence. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? You, couldn't, you couldn't have two different types of characters other than these two characters. So often we tend to judge our standing before the Lord like the Pharisee rather than the tax collector. We put our trust and we put our hope in our external acts of devotion. Now let me be clear. Those external acts of devotion are important. They are important. But they are important because they are the outward work of something that has happened on the inside of your heart. Right? If the, if the external actions are there with, with no internal change, with no internal uh, difference, then there's a problem. And the external acts are important, but only insofar as they come from a heart that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? True righteousness... True justification before God comes from confidence in God, not from confidence in ourselves. We as believers need to be careful that the work of grace that God does in our heart when we cry out to Him for His mercy and when He grants us that mercy and He gives us a new heart, He changes our heart. He takes out the heart of stone and puts in a new beating heart of flesh we need to be careful that that work of grace does not lead us to put our confidence in our external actions. Especially, we need to be careful that God's work of grace doesn't lead us to think that we are superior somehow to other people. True grace ought to create in us a heart of thankfulness and humility, not pride. John Noland, who is a commentator, says of this passage, he says this, if grace does not lead to grace, then it turns out not to have been grace at all. Right? If, if our hearts changed by the gospel, if our hearts molded and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ 
leads us to have contempt towards other people or leads us not to show and extend the same grace to others that God has extended and shown to us, if God's grace in our hearts leads us to put our trust in the external actions of our faith rather than the internal change that is wrought out by God in the Holy Spirit, then we have made an idol out of ourselves. And we are not trusting in the true grace of God. And if that's the case, if that describes you this morning, I would call you to repent because your faith is not actually based in any type of grace at all. Because God's grace doesn't produce that type of heart in people. It produces a heart that is kind and compassionate and gracious to others. Because the tax collector's heart was marked by humble repentance as he cried out for mercy... Jesus said, it's that man that went down to his house justified. It's the sinner who recognized his guilt before the Lord and simply cried out to God because he knew that God was his only hope for salvation. That's the one who walked away justified. That's the one who walked away righteous in the eyes of the Lord. So what about you this morning? How can you find this mercy that the tax collector pleads for and finds in this verse? How can you find it? Well, that's what we see in point three. Point three, that salvation comes by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Salvation comes by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What are you trusting in this morning? What is your trust in this morning? Like both of these men in the parable... We are all sinners to the core of our hearts. We believe that we are unrighteous sinners, unworthy of a holy God. And we need righteousness that comes from somewhere else in order to make us right again. That righteousness can only be found through faith in Jesus. The good news is this, that Jesus came, left his throne in heaven, lived a perfect life, that you and I can never live. Even if we tried our hardest, even if our righteousness surpassed that of this Pharisee, we would still be unrighteous in the eyes of God. That's how deep our sin runs. Right? And Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live. Not even this Pharisee in this parable. He couldn't live a righteous life like Jesus lived. And then he went and he died on the cross as the, as the substitute for the atonement for our sins. And when He died on the cross, He bore the wrath of God that you and I deserve because of our sin. And as He died on the cross, He he made atonement for our sins so that we one day too could be righteous if we respond in repentance and faith. But it doesn't just end there. Jesus dies on that cross and they place Him in a grave. And three days later, He rises from the dead giving us hope for the defeat of sin, for the overturning of the curse from Genesis chapter 3, and for one day eternal life with Him forever. If your faith is in anything else other than Jesus, you do not stand on a solid rock. You stand on sinking sand, as the song says. Right? Just like this tax collector, if we approach God with a humble heart, with a realization of our own sin, and we repent of our sins, and we cry out for His mercy and faith, 
He will forgive us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is both just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So this brings me to a very personal question for you this morning. Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ? Where is your hope this morning? Are you, have you received the mercy that this tax collector cries out from God? Have you received the grace of, of, of salvation from God that can be found in Christ alone? Are you trusting in anything else other than Jesus for your salvation? If you have never put your faith in Christ this morning, this text shows you as clear as crystal what you should do. It it, it speaks to you as clear as crystal as to what you should do. Cry out to Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you do, He will forgive you. He promises that. He's just and faithful to do it if you cry out to Him. For those of you who have already put your faith in Christ, presumably that's most of us in this room, who, who, who seek to follow after the Lord and who are trusting in His saving grace. How does this text then apply to you? Well, I think there's some good questions for reflection that we can, we can think about. One, are, are, are you tempted to compare yourselves to others? Are you tempted to be like this Pharisee in, in taking your righteousness that is a gift from God that you did nothing to deserve and putting that in comparison to other people? Well, if that's the case, it may be a sign that that you don't completely understand the work of God's grace in your heart. Have you you started looking towards these external acts of devotion to God and have you turned those things into idolatry? If someone were to ask you, how do you know that the Lord has changed your heart? You know, if if someone were to ask you, uh, how can you be so confident that you're a Christian? If you say things like, well, I go to church every Sunday, I, I tithe, I, I give to the church, you know, I, I'm a pretty good person, I've never killed anybody. You know, for some reason, anytime I ask that question to people, that's the one thing that pops out, I've never murdered anybody. Well, congratulations, you know. Uh, I would hope that you haven't, you know. Uh, are you trusting in these external acts of devotion? Or, if I were to ask you that question this morning, how is it that you know that you're a Christian? Is your confidence in the sacrifice and the atonement of Jesus on the cross? Would your answer be not, well, I go to this church and I tithe and I do the right thing and I try to be an honest person? Or is your answer, because Jesus died in my place and I recognize that even to this day I have no hope apart from Christ? That is the sign. That is the answer. That's the sign of the inward work of God's grace in your heart that you understand the depths of your sin and the depths of God's mercy. It is so easy to look to our external devotion to God and to turn it into idols. John Calvin said that that our hearts are idol-making factories, that we will turn anything, even good things, into idols. We need to be careful that we don't do that with God's grace. Just like we sang a few moments ago, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Don't be so busy being self-righteous that you're blinded to the fact that you need Jesus' righteousness every single day. We as Christians never grow apart. We never outgrow our need of God's grace. 
We never outgrow this message, no matter how many times we hear it. We never outgrow this message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We only grow deeper into our understanding of our need for it. And we as Christians never outgrow this tax collector's prayer. We never outgrow the need to go before the Lord and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not just a one-time prayer. For Christians, this ought to be our daily petition to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We never outgrow the, the gospel. We only grow deeper into it. Earlier, I mentioned the reformer Martin Luther. And in many ways, it was him who reminded us of the church's this doctrine of justification by faith alone. He wrote a book called The Freedom of a Christian. And in that book, uh, Luther looks at the work of God's grace in our lives and one of the things he rightly understands is that sin ultimately is not an outward action. You know, we, when I say the word sin, we tend to think of actions. We tend to think of things like murder and adultery and theft and dishonesty. But, but Luther rightly says in this book that those things are actually just the outworkings of sin. Now, all of those outward actions come from an inward heart that is looking to oneself rather than looking to God for mercy and grace. So, true saving faith is simply looking to God and believing His promises of the Gospel. Are you doing that today? Is your hope in Christ and in Christ alone, or is it in anything else? And if it's in anything else, I would invite you today to lay those things at the foot of the cross, to repent again and to, and to renew your understanding that salvation is a work of God's grace in your heart, not anything that you can earn or do to believe.